0: Welcome to the June 2nd edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I am Anthony Bardoway and I'll be joined shortly by my co-host Romeo Kokratsky and by a special guest for an interview that will take up the bulk of this episode's runtime. Because our interview is quite long and in depth, I'll be going through the news items of the week rather quickly, though there is, of course, always the chance of covering them in more detail if they continue into later weeks. So first, let's start off with our combat updates the situation in the war on the various points in the front and right now all eyes are on sarodonetsk the russian army has entered the city and taken large parts of it I have seen something between half and even 70% of the city is under Russian control, though there is still very fierce urban fighting, and the Ukrainian soldiers there are not cut off. There's always the ability to withdraw, so we're not looking quite like a Mariupol situation yet. But as Ukraine slowly loses ground in Severodonetsk, Ukrainian soldiers are falling back to the other side of the Donetsk River, see our previous episode for the importance of this river, and they are falling back to Lysychansk, which is on the other bank. Now, on one hand, it is always distressing to see Russia taking ground, and they do very much have the initiative in this area, but Lysychansk is much more defensible. Like I said, it's on the other side of the river, which means that Russia will not be able to attack it without first crossing the river. And second, it is on slightly higher ground. Now, higher ground in the Dunbass is always a very relative term. I've seen some people uh, accentuate it a bit too much. This region is mostly a flat step for long periods, though there is some hills and such, but mostly pretty flat. But still, of the ground that is higher... <laughs> Uh, Lysychansk does have a commanding view of Severodonetsk and is therefore more defensible. The other city we talked about last time was Lemon and it has fallen. Russia has taken control of the city and most of the surrounding countryside. After first taking the town, Russia then moved on and was able to push up right up to the Donetsk River. Though, to repeat myself, this is a difficult boundary to cross and see last episode. Meanwhile, however, the Russian advance from Proposna seems to largely have stalled. They have not made any significant progress from that direction in a number of days. And since the last episode especially, it is the same map. They were briefly able to take control of the road to Severodonetsk, but were since driven off. On the very opposite side of the front line in the Kherson region, Ukraine has made a breakthrough through the Russian defenses on the Inhulets River. They have pushed into Russian-controlled territory, and the Ukrainian salient there is threatening the Russian positions on the western banks of the Dnipro River. And those are the two big changes that have been happening. Russian advances on the northern side of the Donetsk River in the north, largely taking, but not fully taking yet, several and other positions on that side of the river, and then far to the south, a Ukrainian advance through Kherson region. In less uh, directly war-related news, but it is, of course, all connected, The Ukrainian Orthodox Church, under the Moscow Patriarchate, the Russian branch of Orthodox Christianity in Ukraine, seems to have declared independence from the Moscow Patriarch. They put this information out on an official statement on their website, but it's not entirely sure what that means from a direct standpoint. They may be seeking to form a fully independent church, They may end up merging entirely with the uh, Kiev-centered Orthodox Church of Ukraine, but their future seems very, very uncertain. Though in this same statement, they did say that they were open for negotiations with the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which could mean merger in the future, but let's not get too ahead of our feet on that one. Now, since this round of invasion began Uh, The Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine has lost a considerable number of parishes who voluntarily left to join the Orthodox Church of Ukraine instead. Many priests and congregants in the Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine have been very, very upset with their church's connection to the country invading them and killing them, especially since the uh, uh, strongest areas for this church are in the areas that have been bombed the hardest now since i'm running through this real quick there's not as much time as i would like to explain what exactly these two churches are maybe uh, a deep dive topic in the future to explain the extraordinarily difficult <laughs> uh position that the moscow Patriarchate in ukraine is facing from its many defections to its great internal descent, and now its weird adrift position. And in international news, the United States is going to provide the high-mobility artillery rocket system to Ukraine. This is a very long-range and very destructive rocket artillery system, which will prove to be very, very useful in defending Ukraine from the Russians. But this was not without controversy, because there was a lot of very strange comments about how America was worried that Ukraine would use these rockets to shoot at Russia, and would. And Biden specifically said to not want to give weapons that could reach Russia from Ukraine, but that's a very bizarre choice of wording. It The two countries share a border, literally a cheap firework could be shot into Russian territory, depending on where you are in Ukraine. But it ended up an agreement that Ukraine would receive these rockets, but in exchange, they would agree not to shoot them into Russia itself. Though Ukraine has been attacking targets within Russia, uh, warehouses, uh, fuel depots, as we've talked about in the past, I guess they just will not be able to use this particular weapon system in order to do it. And then the second piece of international news, which will segue. Into our interview segment, Ireland has recognized Russian atrocities in Ukraine as a genocide. In addition to Ireland, the newest member of this group of countries, the other countries that recognize Russia's atrocities as genocidal are Estonia, Latvia, Canada, Lithuania, and Czechia. There's also been statements from various American politicians referring to this as genocide, though it has not been. Fully official in the same way. And with that as a setup, we'll be going into our interview now with Christopher Atwood, who is the co author of a report making the legal case for Russian atrocities being called genocide and what that could mean in the future. A few days ago, there was a recent report from the New Lines Institute and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. This article was an outline basically making a legal case that what Russia is doing in Ukraine qualifies as genocide. The title of this paper is, quite directly, an independent legal analysis of the Russian Federation's breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine and the duty to prevent. With us here today is Christopher Atwood, one of the uh, researchers and co-authors of this piece. He is a graduate student at the Harriman Institute at Columbia University in New York, and he's actually a former colleague of Romeo and I's.
1: Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us, and uh, it's good to hear from you again. Hope you've been doing all right in these uh, relatively trying times.
2: Uh, I've had so many nightmares in the past several months, but, uh, you know, Like, glad to hear from you guys. Glad to know you guys are safe.
1: Yeah, it's uh, (laughs) on and off, but we've tried to keep ourselves as as, uh, safe as possible. Um, Now, I want to just jump right into this um, report that you contributed to uh, and just start out with something really basic. So um, how did you get involved in writing this report and what was your motivation for um, joining in this effort?
2: I heard whispers that this report was happening um, from colleagues uh, who work at New Lines. And basically, it just so happened that my uh, research interests and my background sort of lined up almost perfectly with what they were looking at. Uh, Specifically, you know, there was was an idea that we might want to look in the direction of uh, incitement to genocide from Russian propaganda. You know, I, I, I study perceptions of identity, perceptions of uh, culture and media. So that sort of, you know, worked perfect for what they were looking for in terms of getting down uh, to exactly what was going on. Um, and then my motivation for taking part is uh, that I loved the idea that we were doing a totally independent report. Um, you know, we have no connection to anybody we uh you know none of our contributors are uh connected in any formal way to any government um we're just like you know we had lots of very difficult conversations about what genocide actually is what the geno- what the genocide convention actually says and what our research actually proves um and i i, I was super thrilled to get to take part uh in that kind of effort Where, you know, I can really say from being on the inside that there was no, um, there was no specific, you know, there was no expectation to find anything conclusive. Um, We went in going, can we prove this? And then as we went further down, it was the question began to change and be, okay, what exactly can we prove and to what extent? So So why exactly is
1: something like this necessary? I mean, from my position here on the ground in Ukraine, being Ukrainian myself, um, what the Russians did, especially in Bucha, um, in urban, is obviously genocide to me. But why um, does that argument, what do you think that argument had to be made in in this kind of um, very forceful way? It's a very persuasive very very well-researched report. um, But my, I guess I'm wondering, why exactly it needed to be made why isn't it just self-evident that what the russians um are doing in ukraine is genocide?
2: that's a great question i think that for the purposes of our report um you know we looked we looked around at the conversation happening uh concerning ukraine and we kind of understood that uh you know Well, there's a couple of points here right like one is a lot of people were making the argument of genocide without you know citing any specific uh case law without citing any actual evidence for example if you look at all of the governments who have formally uh uh you know recognized that russia is committing genocide none of them actually point to any specific evidence or make any legal case why that would be the case um and so the other major point, at least in my view, is that when, when those arguments are happening, it's a very convenient role or a very convenient position to take to say, well, genocide is a legal definition, and so we can't jump to conclusions. If you remember, um, I don't, don't want to name names, but if you remember a certain journalist uh, you know, wanted to have a podcast where uh, they were going to debate whether or not Russia was committing genocide in Ukraine and the way that it was positioned and the way that he could defend himself was, well, you know, the jury's still out because it's a legal term. It's not a, uh, it's not just some academic term that we can just throw out there. And so I think from our standpoint and from all of, I know for a hundred percent, all of the human rights lawyers, uh, and genocide experts who worked on the project, um, for them, it was really important to get a legal document out. That could be like, you know, this is what the Genocide Convention says. This is what Russia must do to uphold their obligations under the Genocide Convention. And these are the things Russia is doing that are in breach of the Genocide Convention. For
1: our listeners um, that are curious about who Chris is referring to, I am not very diplomatic. And this is, after all, my podcast. Uh, He was referring to Kevin Rothrock, a journalist at the independent Russian publication uh, Medusa who tweeted out that he wanted to set up a panel to debate whether the events in Ukraine are genocide or not. Though, Chris, I imagine after your report, um, that argument will be a little easier to make. Uh, Now, I had uh, time to glance over it. And uh, like I said, it's a very meticulously almost research report. Um, And I'm just kind of curious how how much work and time it took into putting it together and whether or not it was difficult to gather um, the evidence needed to make your case, given that, you know, the area was just deoccupied like a month or a month and a half ago.
2: I mean, I can say, so for in terms of uh, like research about actual specific atrocities, um, right, we rely on a ton of uh, independent reports, uh, a ton of, right, like we, we, we rely on, I think, one or two OSCE reports pretty heavily in terms of understanding specific atrocities. I think we refer to a couple of different Human Rights Watch reports. Um, so we our job um, was to gather all of the publicly available evidence and then interpret that evidence through, uh, uh, like, through the Genocide Convention and make a legal case with it. Uh, I think the most difficult thing on my part um, is like my specific research contributions to the report, which was predominantly uh, the Russian propaganda narratives. Um, From my perspective, it was really hard to narrow in on um, specific items and specific shows and specific episodes of those shows uh, in order to really distill what that propaganda looks like, because obviously a lot of the time it uh, it 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 is you know it's camped in some kind of almost uh, innocent sounding phrasing or uh, 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 framing. And you know it was it was it was a bit of a challenge to dig deep and get like actual explicit quotes. um but then, sort of once you get that ball rolling, You start to realize what to look for. You start to realize what periods of time these narratives start really popping up and what, you know, you can start, you you see like there's, at least in my experience researching this, it almost felt like there were clusters of they would like have these really explicit statements about Ukraine. And then they would go back to like, like quasi genocidal rhetoric. And then it would come back to be like overtly genocidal. Um, Like for example, uh, I think a lot of our, uh, Like incitement, a lot of the quotes we used in the incitement section came from March. Like, I don't know what it was that in March they like decided they really needed to ramp up the genocidal rhetoric, but apparently they did.
1: Um, Now, before I go a little deeper into the Russian propaganda angle, because that's one of the more, I don't know, interesting angles of this whole situation to me, Um, I did want to ask, so uh, you mentioned that when the kind of concept of this report was being put together um, the question wasn't, you know, let's prove the Russians are committing genocide in Ukraine, but let's try and, and define what exactly is going on. At what point did um, you and the and your co-authors really start realizing that this wasn't, I don't know, a minor <laughs> ethnic conflict, um, but outright genocide?
2: You know, I think that um, I mean, we started putting this report together. Uh, in a really serious manner. I know they were working on it before I joined. Uh, I joined after uh, we learned about what had happened in Bucha. So there was an idea that this these kinds of atrocities uh, tend to point to some kind of violation of the Genocide Convention. It was just, can we demonstrate that? And what are the actual uh, breaches. Like where, where did they breach it? What responsibilities did they not, uh, uphold? Could
1: you, um, tell our audience exactly what the genocide convention is that you're referring to?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I think what was from 1948, uh, the genocide convention is just, um, it is basically a, um, basically an international treaty that, uh, every signatory agrees that they will not engage in, uh, like the the main phrase is the destruction in whole or in part uh any protected class and the protected classes are specifically defined by the convention itself and um it includes obviously an ethnic group um or a national group so uh and the big thing there uh and there's like two main points actually it's great that you asked that question because there's two main misconceptions about the genocide convention that our report uh sort of uh like th- these misconceptions uh, m- make it seem like our report wouldn't be possible, but the two main things is number one, you do not have to order a genocide in order to commit a genocide. That is how incitement to genocide uh, uh plays such a key role in our report uh, and the other thing is the there's a huge stress on in part right destroying a group in whole or in part, right so what our report finds is that you know Russia is okay with uh a, like with the concept of a like theoretical Ukrainian group, but they have to destroy the part of the Ukrainian group that views itself as completely uh independent and distinct from a uh, greater Russian people. Um and so yeah, like we we uh this report is understood and should only be understood within the context of the genocide convention, which is um uh also important to remember. Because I've seen so many comments um, that, oh my God, I knew this like three months ago. Well, yeah, like in principle, but you still have to put together all of the evidence and then do the legal analysis, which is what we did.
0: Yeah, yeah, the, the in part thing really stands out because it seems as though there's this idea that a genocide means the absolute and total extermination of an entire people, and those are vanishingly rare Um, even if we look at the Holocaust, for example, if we want to use these extraordinarily narrow definitions that people want to use, one, obviously it was not successful. It was not, uh, in whole and two, when it gets to the actual orders given by the Nazi regime to exterminate Jews, it, it does not get very explicit. There's a lot of, um, moving around. So the idea that there there has to be a direct order from Putin saying I want every Ukrainian dead for it to be genocide is utterly ahistorical.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's kind of um that's a big thing that I think a lot of people are taking away from the report. Uh I know that I saw one Ukrainian member of Parliament giving a giving an interview the other day uh where he he mentioned the report and he goes, like You know, you know, a lot of people think and like you could see it in his in his eyes almost like, you know, he didn't realize that like, yeah, actually, in part is like a pretty big, like significant phrase in the Genocide Convention. Um, And not only that, like, you know, it it just has to be a I think we, we talk about this in the report, like it just has to be a significant part. Like it, it it doesn't have to be like, it doesn't even have to be a majority of the group. It just has to be a significant, like noticeable part of that group.
1: And given that there's, um, the whole incitement clause, uh, one would hope that the, uh, convention would typically kick in prior to an actual genocide.
2: Yes, actually, this is, this is, um, this is, yeah, this is, this is another huge factor of our report is that, um, you know, one of our conclusions, I mean, our, our main conclusion, like the definitive conclusion that we made is that, uh, I guess we had two main conclusions, right? We had, there's reasonable grounds to conclude that there is genocide taking place, which is not a, like Russia is guilty of genocide. Uh, uh, definitely we could prove it in court right now. It's, we think we could put together the rest of the case and make that case and like, like move forward with it. Um, but the definitive thing we say is there is definitely, we've 100% established a serious risk of genocide, which then compels uh, states to act, right? Like this is another, actually it's really great that you brought that up as well because we had this conversation so many times with the uh, lawyers on the report, which is you do not need uh, to already have committed genocide to be in violation of the genocide convention. And genocide does not need to have taken place for uh, parties to the Genocide Convention to be legally obligated to prevent that genocide.
1: So that's actually something else I wanted to ask about. What exactly does this legal obligation entail? Um, What does it mean that a signatory to the convention is uh, legally bound to uphold or observe the, um, the articles of the convention?
2: Right. So that's that that turns into a more political question that we do not address in the report. Um, you know, obviously, we you know discussed what that means, and really, it comes down to, in uh, our eyes, as you know, states have states have to reasonably act. They can do. They can take actions to prevent, and they can take actions to punish. So, preventing, um, you know, preventing can mean a range of things from humanitarian efforts to uh you know helping create humanitarian corridors to um you know and it, it, that that can also obviously include like military intervention like you can go all the way up the scale there um and then punishment could mean you know sanctions it could mean suspending all trade and all relations with with the offending party um you know there's there is no set defined set of actions that any individual state should take although i do believe um, that, uh, uh, states with strong political ties and more influence with Russia have a greater duty to act. Uh, that, that was my inter, that's my understanding of how this works. I think we might've put that in the report, but I might be mistaken there. I know there was a conversation about that, about how, uh, anyone who can theoretically influence Putin more than, you know, like, so for example, um, it's not on, uh, it's not on some small random country like, I don't, I don't know, like, like Lichtenstein, right? Like their duty to prevent and to act right now uh, is not nearly as strong as, say, China's duty to prevent and to act.
0: Uh, although I do have to point out that while this duty to act does exist, it hasn't exactly been uh, acted upon. Yeah, I wanted oh, yeah. to bring that up, but I was
1: thinking, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was thinking to, to ask that a little bit later since, um, there's a, there's a whole kind of, uh, philosophical dimension to, to, to this whole discussion that I wanted to, to get into. Um, but before that, I wanted to kind of jump back and talk about specifically the, the Russian disinformation angle. One of the big focuses of the report, um, was this accusation in mirror, um, where, Russia basically accuses Ukraine of doing what it then does. Right. Um, and, and this is something you see quite a bit, I want to say, um, generally, uh, but what really like came to mind, One example is, um, something we call conservative projection where, um conservative and reactionary political forces often across the world really, um, will accuse their opponents, typically liberal, um, of doing, of, of committing some level of atrocities, but then turn around and either defend or excuse those atrocities, um, themselves. When you were researching this, what really struck you as this accusation in a mirror, um, feature of, Russian uh, of this Russian propaganda um, to incite genocide. What kind of was there any particular like bit of propaganda that really hit you that was like this is so hypocritical? Um, This is just complete projection.
0: And just throwing it out there uh, as an example of what you said is there's the recent shooting in. The previous to the recent shooting in the U.S. that happened because the shooter was fighting against what he called white genocide. He saw it as a defensive act, the same way that uh, during Russia's initial build-up to invasion, they were saying that Ukraine is committing genocide against uh, Russian speakers in the Donbass as a way to justify what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it is mm-hmm. very, very, yeah, it's all very much connected. Uh, of th- at least. In a rhetorical sense, they're claiming it is a defensive action, but the defensive action is about yeah. something that just simply does not exist in the first place.
2: So, one of the really fascinating aspects of the report, and this kind of gets to the ex- a- accusation in a mirror, is when we started talking about it, we, when, when, and when the international human rights lawyer side of the project started doing the legal analysis with what we had found. Um, we, 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 we realized, uh, this huge tension in Russia's propaganda because on one hand, they reject the concept of Ukraine, uh, and they reject the concept of Ukrainians. But on the other hand, they see Ukrainians as an existential threat and as purveyors of genocide against ethnic Russians. Um, to, to your point, like the accusation in the mirror, what stood out to me the most, um, it actually became a footnote in the report. It was something I had done a lot of research on and I, um, I, I, had, I, had, I had talked about it for a long time. I watched like several episodes of there's this guy called uh, Pyotr Tolstoy. Um, he is the, like the deputy chairman of the Duma in Moscow. And so uh, he had a TV show. Uh, where one of the oh I should I should say like his like he originally was a TV journalist that was his thing um and he claims the legacy of Leo Tolstoy like and he's super proud of that and like there's there's literally an entire uh episode of some like DNA show where they talk about his like his family legacy and traces back his entire family to Tolstoy so Anyway, this guy, on the first episode of a talk show that he had, that uh, was called uh, Tolstoy Sunday, um, he spent the entire first segment of the show explaining to his audience how Ukraine was completely a fictitious construct that Ukrainian language did not exist, that he showed like this fake map of Ukraine and language distribution in the country, and it basically said everyone either speaks Russian or Surzik and then uh, people in the very far west, super right-wing areas of Ukraine uh, speak something they call Ukrainian, but we don't really know what it is. So there was this whole episode. He had this... Uh, I just want to note that um, people speak either
1: Russian or Surzhik. Surzhik, um, for our listeners who may not be aware, is kind of the the Russian term for Krayol, a mix of languages. So the question, of course, is then... What is the Russian mixed with?
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, But then, so then he has uh, an interaction with a, so there's this pro-Russian Ukrainian journalist who's like, uh, she's like this, you know, she plays a Ukrainian uh, like stooge on Russian state TV or she did. Uh, at that there time, there used to be and, more of
0: them. Than yeah, there yeah, are yeah. Now they they yeah. have their designated punching bags.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so she responds to him and says, "Well, everybody in Ukraine understands Ukrainian." And then he responds and says, "Everybody in Russia understands Ukrainian because it's a southwestern dialect of Russian." And the audience like goes crazy with applause and everything. Fast forward to like four or five months later. And so, sorry, I should also mention this episode. The reason he's talking about Ukrainian is because there was the Ukrainian language law in 2018 and he was like, it might pass. So then there was another surge and something else related to the Ukrainian language law later, either in uh, 2018 or 2019. And he freaks out and he has another segment on the same show. But now it's dedicated to the ethnic minority of Russians in Ukraine. So there's this like natural tension in his own show. Like it's the same show. He like just a matter of months later, you go from Ukrainians don't even exist and they're all Russians and they're just uh, manipulated by Western propaganda. They're just Russians to there's a distinct ethnic Russian minority in Ukraine who is threatened by the Ukrainian language law. And it's just like this like insanity and it's just absolutely absurd. And like, it's almost hard to wrap your mind around. And we actually had, um, you know, we had conversations with legal experts who didn't know the region and we had to like talk to them, uh, like talk them through how we can, um, like how all of this makes sense. And so we had like, we had to revise the incitement section of the report several times to account for this, like almost absurd tension.
0: And has this really gone in phases so much? You're talking about how in March, especially it was, you know, peak genocidal talk. Yeah. Uh, but does this go in big trends? Does this go like episode to episode even, or is it more longer, longer view than that?
2: Um, so I didn't, I, I actually thought about doing this. I just didn't have time while we were doing the research for the report. And I do think I I want to do this like in the future with the research that I have. Um, But I really want to, yeah, try to track where the trends are and where the rhetoric goes, because it seems on the surface, based on the research that I did, that, yeah, like in March, you have this very genocidal rhetoric, then news about Bucha comes out, and the rhetoric shifts a little bit, and it becomes more about, um, it becomes more about, uh, uh, like, we're actually fighting NATO, and that's why it's taking so long. I mean, my interpretation, to be quite frank, is I think that the propagandists generally believed that uh, the invasion was going to happen very quickly. Ukraine would fall immediately and it would be over and like they would go on to some other news story about building Ukraine. So when it didn't succeed immediately, they had to come up with some reason. And their first reason in March was actually there's a lot of Nazis there. We didn't realize how many Nazis were there. Uh, we actually cite this in the report. There's a quote from uh Pyotr Tolstoy, uh, where he talks about, uh, how, as we, as we found out, uh, we lost an entire generation of Ukrainians. Uh, then there's a quote from, um, Margarita Simonyan, the head of, uh, RT. Uh, she talks about how, uh, I also thought it was just a few Nazis, but it turns out there's so many of them. Then after we find out about Bucha, uh, we get the, we get this like absolutely insane, uh, post on telegram from, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the former prime minister, former president of Russia. Um, and he's talking about how, you know, you should see what our soldiers are finding when they occupy, uh, areas of Ukraine. There's just Nazis everywhere. And so like that was the, uh, mid March to early April, uh, theme it seemed to me in my research.
0: And to highlight, one moment, to highlight here, though, because they were saying that the aim of this uh, special military operation was to denazify Ukraine. Yes. If there are, if there's even more Nazis than they thought, that means they have to kill even more people than they thought. So to make that, to bring that point home completely, when they say uh, denazification, they mean liquidation of everything, everyone they consider to be Nazi. And... I mean, they
1: make that point... Um, they, they make that point explicitly in um, this article on that came out on Ria Novosti, one of um, Russia's main propaganda outlets, um, yeah. which basically explicitly just said what uh, you just mentioned, Anthony, that there are so many Nazis in Ukraine that denazification will mean the extermination of like a good chunk of the population of Ukraine. Um, they, they came out, like they come out and say this, they don't seem to be, um, overly concerned by reports like yours, Chris.
2: Yeah, no, no, there's okay. So like there actually is a specific, we actually have, uh, like a bunch of quotes from that, that editorial because it really distills like, you know, it's, it's saying the quiet part out loud and it really distills everything that we found that their, uh, propaganda was attempting to do. There's literally the line uh, denazification will inevitably include de-Ukrainization. So, right? Like, so, and, and this is, it sort of boils down to, uh, what, again, what we found is that within the Russian context and within the context of this propaganda, uh, ultimately, if you are a Ukrainian who believes that you are distinct from Russia, that you, that Ukrainians are a distinct people from Russians, And you do not want Russia to be the predominant uh, uh, subjugating power, like ruling over you, then you are a Nazi and you need to be denazified. And when you tie that into World War II rhetoric, and when you tie that into uh, the idea that Ukrainian Nazis are an existential threat to Russia and to Russians, and that uh, Ukrainian Nazis want to murder all Russians, well, then you're telling a soldier you need to do something with this person who we perceive as a Nazi. And the easiest thing to do with that person in order to preserve yourself and to preserve your people in your own mind, right? Like as, as somebody who's been, uh, uh, you know, indoctrinated by this propaganda is to just, you kill them. And, you know, it's also important here to note that, uh, Russian soldiers have to read Putin's, uh, essay on the unification, uh, or sorry, the, uh, the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. And they have one hour of TV time every day, except for Sundays. And that TV time is state news. So Almighty, that's what's the church? Yeah. So, so, so they are getting um, directly fed these narratives. And then they're going into Ukraine and uh, interacting with people who fit the definition of what a Nazi in Ukraine actually is, and there's far more of them than what they were told, and it's their job to denazify those people. And so what do they do? They commit mass atrocities and mass rapes.
0: Yeah, so we talked a bit about how this has um, morphed and mutated over time to basically fit what needs to be said, how uh, they needed to, in some ways, find excuses for their failures has the intensity of these, the violence against Ukrainian civilians, against Ukrainian POWs, this, oh, this would be extraordinarily difficult to try to quantify, but has, do you think this has matched at all with the intensity of the rhetoric? Has that mapped onto intensity of atrocities at all,
2: do you think? Oh, that, that is a, that is an excellent question that yeah,
0: I'm formulating a research question as I, as yeah, I know that right is, now, that yeah. is,
2: yeah, that is, a, that is an excellent research question that I think we could probably dig into with our data and come up with an answer for. I do know that at least one of the contributors to the report asked the question of tracking, uh, deaths uh and looking at that from the perspective of propaganda narratives, uh, we weren't able to do that in part because it's really hard right now to get uh the actual total numbers of deaths, right? For example, um, what's happening in Herson right now, right? We can only imagine uh what is actually happening to a lot of people right like w- a lot of people there right now. Um and we don't know what the timeline of those atrocities are you know it took it took a while for that new york times report to get done about what happened in bucha and being able to roughly put dates on things so i think that is an excellent thing that needs to be looked at to see what exactly the correlation is between like stronger propaganda narratives and like more horrific and wider spread atrocities from russian soldiers um but i do think that ultimately we we think that um it's highly likely, if not you know, in, if if not like almost certain that Russian soldiers are internalizing the propaganda. So it almost doesn't even really uh, make that much of a difference um, what the waves of propaganda are saying to them, because you know once you've decided that any Ukrainian who rejects uh, the greater Russian people, it once you decide that that person is inherently a Nazi and that Nazis are an existential threat to Russians um, you know, you're, you're done. Like you, 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 you know what you need to do. And don't forget, right. Putin, he gave the brigade, the brigade that is accused of carrying out the atrocities in Bucha. He gave them like awards. So they're being rewarded for these actions as well. Another thing I wanted to touch on, uh, as well is, you know, um, this all ties into religion as well. Like we didn't cover how deeply it goes into religion. But, you know, there's a big thing about uh, when the church received Thomas, the Ukrainian, uh, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine received uh, Thomas, which is- uh, Independence. Independence, yeah, from the Russian Orthodox Church. They're a fully independent, uh, self-contained Orthodox Church in Ukraine um, that is recognized by other Orthodox churches. And uh, Russia is very upset about that. Uh, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, Kirill, is very upset about that. And, you know, you get these, you know, every, everything just intertwines and soldiers are also led to know, you know. Um, as of,
1: I want to say, the day before yesterday, um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the part of it that used to um, be part of the Moscow Patriarchate that is connected to The Russian Orthodox Church has also declared its independence.
0: But also another thing to point out is that I saw that basically Russian soldiers were given a pamphlet of what to say to Ukrainian locals to try to talk them down or whatever. And one of them said, like, if they ask, are you Ukrainian? Are you Russian? You're supposed to respond. I'm uh, Orthodox because that's considered like the more uh, easier to swallow idea that these are orthodox people coming in
1: yeah let's raise the question of how dagestani or briati <laughs> were taught russian soldiers are supposed to respond
0: yeah like why why do buddhists care about the historical unity of the russian orthodox church
2: actually uh uh to that point right so one thing that i have to say is that uh, another big thing since this is like a uh legal document we had to you know, try to verify every single thing that we could include in it. So even though that that uh, pamphlet was published uh, or made public um, uh, the day that we released our report, but even if, even if it had been included or even if it had been published earlier, we wouldn't have been able to include it uh, because we don't know exactly where it came from and all that stuff. But I will say two things on that. Uh, one is it completely tracks with everything that we found uh, in terms of Russian narratives concerning Ukraine. But number two, it also tracks with, I saw an article uh, actually uh, from NV where a, a Ukrainian guy was giving an interview basically saying, yeah, I talked to a bunch of Russian soldiers here and they were clearly not all ethnically Russian, but they would all just insist, yeah, we're Russian and we're Orthodox. And it's just, it's so fascinating. And like, he would be like, I can tell that you're not Russian. Like, you're clearly not ethnically Russian. Like, where are you from? Like, what is this? And um, they'd be like, no, 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 I'm, 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 I'm ethnically Russian, and I am Orthodox.
1: And I mean, so, you're
2: obviously, a Sunni Muslim, like, <laughs> you can't hide that. Yeah, exactly. So it, it 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 is fascinating that that is the that is the and this is this is the this is the other thing though, right? Is that um, we don't talk about this in the report at all, obviously, but um, another important thing here is that Russians uh like Russia clearly does not understand or have any real feel for Ukraine or Ukrainians so the fact that they think that sending some guy from uh the far east in Russia to Ukraine and having him say yeah 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 i'm i'm uh i'm i'm an ethnic russian who uh speaks russian and is orthodox just like you and that that is going to have any impact on the willingness of the average ukrainian to accept uh russian military occupation it is it is bewildering to me that that is genuinely what they think will work well to that i think i
1: have a little bit of a um maybe not a complete explanation but a little bit of insight um there was uh, a recent um piece on on um, russian news one of their many many talk shows um and one of the um anchors talking about the quote unquote, special military operation accidentally um, kind of slipped up and called this a civil war. Yeah. Uh, And of course, I thought that was an incredibly interesting kind of viewpoint of how the Russians actually see this, this war, this invasion, not really as we're going to go invade a sovereign nation, but um, we have this recalcitrant unruly province that needs to be brought to heel to uh, once more pay tribute to the crown.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what they think. That's exactly the framing that they prefer.
1: Like Ukraine's independence and really the independence of all the post-Soviet nations is, is like fictitious. It's a fig leaf. Yes. To what the evil West had to do um, when the Soviet
0: Union fell apart. But in reality, all these places are still really Russian. Which is why they have to
2: be destroyed. Exactly. And, and Russified and quote-unquote denazified. Uh, But the the, the thing here that is fascinating to me, it seems based on their actions and based on their rhetoric, everything all together, it seems like they genuinely really believe the the propaganda that actually there's just this Nazi element of society that if we get rid of them, then everyone else 100% believes that actually Ukraine is just a province of Russia. Uh, Actually, I think we have in the report a uh, uh, this amazing Telegram post from Vladimir Solovyov, um, where he shared.
1: Solovyov is one of Russia's um, chief propagandists.
2: Yes, yeah, he's the he, he's like the main person on Russia One, which is the main state TV channel uh, for one of the state TV like for, like he's he's that's the main state TV channel for like one of the state propaganda companies. And there are multiple state propaganda companies because it's Russia. This uh, uh, this telegram post was by the super far right uh, telegram channel. If he had shared this one post and then deleted it and then had never shared that channel in, in any other context, we could not have included it in the report. But he shares this channel like once a day or like, you know, maybe maybe five times a week or something. And so he definitely interacts with this super far right channel all the time. But basically, yeah, it also argued. Uh, and I'm looking at the quote right now. Uh, Ukraine is a Nazi tumor similar to brain cancer and that Russians are liberating part of Russia. And uh, if it, I, I remember the, the, the entire post from memory. And one of the uh, lines in it is that uh, uh, Ukraine will still exist. It'll just be a republic of Russia, just like Chechnya is a republic of Russia. Why is that so bad? And I'm just like, oh, my God. My
1: God. And I want to uh, mention this is something we've talked about quite a few times on the podcast, is that Russians have never historically understood the concept of um Ukrainian statehood. an example I love to come back to over and over again are um letters written from um written during the period of the Russian Civil War, um from the uh, Bolshevik's man
0: in Kharkiv, which was a big industrial base at the time. And the capital of the Ukrainian Soviet.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and it was um, basically Lenin's hand-picked guy for handling Ukraine was in Kharkiv, and he kept writing um, just reams and reams of letters to Lenin that basically amounted to, I don't understand these Ukrainians, they keep talking about independence, but what does that mean? They're Russians. <laughs>
2: Oh, just just to go a little further on that, um, uh, Serhii uh, Yakulchik has an amazing book called Stalin's Empire of Memory, and he really dives into this struggle between, um, I guess he doesn't really dive into it, but he touches on it a few times. Uh, there's this struggle between the communist, the actual Ukrainian communist in Kiev and the communists in Moscow. And how the communists in Moscow just do not understand Ukrainians; it just cannot fathom the like idea of a Ukrainian national identity. And like there, there's, there's, there's this amazing moment where he talks about how uh, one of the more embarrassing parts of uh, Stalin's rule during that during or during his rule uh, was that in Ukraine towns would be really really eager to get either an uh, Ivan Franko statue the great Ukrainian poet or a Tarashevchenko statue the other great Ukrainian poet so the the idea was first you had to get a Lenin statue that was the policy but some towns would try to like go behind the like uh uh the like the higher soviets backs and there's one example of a town getting uh, a, like an extra Shevchenko statue from Kiev before they got a Lenin statue and the officials there all gotten a lot of trouble because first you had to get a Lenin statue. But it was almost bewildering to some of the Soviets that, um, okay, fine, we'll accept it. First we get a Lenin statue, but then we get our Ukrainian statue. And then I guess if you want to put a Stalin statue there, maybe you can, but as long as we make the Shevchenko or Franco statue more prominent, then okay, maybe. And so it's sort of like Stalin's place in Ukraine was below Lenin and below uh, uh, Shevchenko and below Franco, which is just like unfathomable to uh, Russian communists at the time.
1: I'd say, to be honest, it seems to be unfathomable to modern Russians. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. I don't want to go too much into this now because it's something I'm kind of working on so we can talk about it at a later date, is this idea of where russians are taking over in occupied territories of ukraine they are actively stripping it of ukrainian cultural signifiers uh be it statues there's book burnings as a way of not even things that are like actively nationalist per se just ukrainian in like a vague even during soviet times would probably have been acceptable in the case of these stranko statues are now Beyond the pale, it's like an escalation compared to even Soviet times of anti-Ukrainianness in this way.
2: Just, just to that point, in one of uh, it might be in the essay, it might be in the uh, essay on the unity of Russians and Ukrainians by Putin, but it's it's somewhere in one of either Putin's speeches or essays where he he claims he claims for Russian culture Tarashevchenko. and he says that Tarashevchenko is our mutual writer like he legitimately tries to claim that which is something that like i just like i was in awe when i read that line i was just like what
1: he's not even the first russian to have said that i mean i've heard that argument quite a few times from the russians they usually say well trachevchenko lived his entire life in saint petersburg he worked at the court he spoke russian obviously how is he not a russian writer to which of course the response is go fuck yourself.
2: It is fascinating that that, that, that that's that's also one of the tacks that that uh, at least Putin himself has has taken, which is um, okay, well, if we can't get rid of Chevchenko, then if we can't vilify Shevchenko as a Nazi, well then at least we can claim that he is um, that he is ours. We can assimilate him. Yes, exactly. Another big thing is um uh, actually, it just, this, this exchange just reminded me of another, another part of the Stalin's uh, Empire of Memory book, Melnitsky. There's like this, there's this whole scene uh, where they're talking about propaganda narratives and how to uh, like make Ukrainians more loyal to Russia and to emphasize the unity of Ukrainians and Russians and to re-examine Ukrainian history. And these Ukrainian uh, uh, communist historians come back and they're like, it's really hard to justify Melnitsky as a communist hero and the Soviets, like the Soviets from Moscow are like, you have to like, he's like fundamental to our story that we're united peoples. He's the one who united us. So like, how can you say that he's not a communist or like not a communist hero or not a hero of the people? Like, of course he has to be a hero of the people. So it's just, it's just fascinating how far uh, the propaganda will go at times to try to manipulate history and uh, uh, you know, o- perceptions of identity in order to create this uh, uh, idea of a great Russian nation that includes both Russians and Ukrainians.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think we're getting a little long here, so I want to just wrap up um, with a return to that philosophical discussion I mentioned earlier. Um, One of the things that I, as um, listeners of the pod may know, I'm sure Anthony and Chris know, I'm not a big believer in abstract concepts like the rule of law or uh, legal norms or anything like that, because it seems to me that in the material world, ink on a paper looks nice, but doesn't really influence anyone's behavior. Um, And in that vein, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about like, so we have this report. It's it lays out a pretty compelling, um, in my view, case that, yes, Russia's actions legally um can, can be legally defined as genocide and i guess what my uh question here is or, or what my reaction my kind of knee-jerk reaction to that is so what what does that change what what does this impact And i'm hoping um you uh or anthony can have a little bit more positive <laughs> um look or, or a counterpoint to me because it seems like to me you know, we can waste uh, acres worth worth of trees on Russian atrocities, but the material situation will not change.
0: From a historical standpoint, uh, the Genocide Convention has really only been invoked after the fact. Uh, in the case of Yugoslavia especially, there was very elaborate court cases about various individuals such as Mladic, uh being in violation of this genocide convention but that was only after he was captured Uh, more recently there was an invocation of this during the rohingya genocide in myanmar that was while the genocide was ongoing but did anything come of it no there's now like you know a massive civil war in myanmar where various factions are kind of fighting against the army who was doing the genocide but there's nothing done from an international law perspective there, even though it had been invoked uh, during the time. So I don't know. Is there any hope here?
1: Yeah, what is exactly. Like, what is the value of this? I, I don't mean this in, you know, a standoffish, like sarcastic way. I really want to hear, um, especially from someone who worked on a report like this. What do you think the, the, the real value of a piece like this is? Because we know that, It's unlikely to, you know, lead to some international coalition of the willing that's going to go airdrop paratroopers into Moscow to arrest Putin, right? So what is the actual value
2: of a report like that? I should note that sort of as uh, Anthony alluded to, uh, this this report is in a lot of ways unprecedented. Uh, There haven't been very many, if any, documents uh, like this this early in a major war. so it's already, uh, it's already important in that sense that, uh, just we're establishing right now, uh, what the procedure should or might be, or what we might expect from, uh, interested, uh, parties, uh, in the event, uh, or in the, in the, uh, parties who, uh, have taken like, uh, like an actual, uh, interest in the events happening. Right. So like the U.S. is already sending weapons. Uh, much of Europe is 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 taking various amounts of actions, right? So, how are all of those going to respond? And how they respond will better inform, uh, uh, you know, future researchers uh, and future experts dealing with future situations. So that's one way that it's important, which isn't obviously directly connected to Ukraine. Um, my perception, and this can only be my perception, because I know that everybody on who worked on the report has their own view of how this might impact things. And, you know, the big, the big thing that we all talked about with each other is this is really important work. I really hope it has an impact. So there was no, uh, with a lot of my conversations with my colleagues, there was not a lot of def- definitive, this is how it's going to impact things. My personal view is I think that it, uh, it presses the right buttons with the right people. So for example, uh, Joe Biden had uh, the uh, very widely shared quote from a month or two ago that was, uh, you know, I think it might be genocide, but that's for the lawyers to decide. Well, now international legal experts who are at the top of their field have weighed in and told everybody what's happening and that definitely, yes, Russia is in breach of the genocide convention. Um, So there's, there's that aspect of it, which is anybody who was looking for the legal uh, argument and anybody who was hesitant because they hadn't seen the legal argument now has uh, that aspect of what they need to understand what's actually happening. Um, Beyond that, I know that it has been, you know, it's been in the hands of Ukrainian politicians who have talked about it publicly at this point. Um, I want to say I saw somebody else. Oh the uh the UN uh or sorry the the EU's ambassador to Ukraine tweeted about it the first day that it was out there. So another big thing is getting it in the hands of important people, like influential people and getting them or whatever, getting their staffs to go through it and then to brief them on what we're talking about so that they also have a better understanding of what's actually happening and what Russian propaganda actually means. I think that for a lot of people outside of Ukraine there is, you know, not a ton of understanding what Russian propaganda actually is. There's just this abstract concept of it. Like you, you've seen RT. So maybe that's what you see in Russia, but you know, RT is very buttoned down compared to a lot of the shows that are, that, that Russians are watching. So I think that, um, I think that that, in my view, is the best possible way that things are going to uh, uh, be influenced. I think states will have uh, a, you know, they'll, they'll have more motivation and better ammo in terms of justifying their help to Ukraine. So for example, like I said earlier uh, in the conversation, right, like you looked, when you looked at the uh, statements that different parliaments made around Europe condemning uh, genocide, right, none of them actually cited anything. I think the Estonian statement came the closest and said that uh that uh the uh Russian government state propaganda and military were were involved in a propaganda campaign and we showed exactly what that propaganda campaign looks like and how it can be used in an illegal analysis to determine uh Russia's obligations under the G- or under the uh genocide conventions and what their breaches actually are. So, you know, I think I don't think it's going to have the major uh, uh, impact that we all would hope it would have, which is everybody is like, oh, okay, yeah, now we actually have to do something. We need to start court proceedings. We need to speed those up. We also need to make, take material action to prevent this genocide. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think that it will be, uh, it will offer motivation to people and it will help uh, uh, important people who want to help Ukraine better understand what is actually happening and, the, and, and make more clear what the dangers actually are.
1: Thank you very much for that. Uh, we've been speaking to uh, Chris Atwood. He is one of the co-authors of a recent report called the, An Independent Legal Analysis of the Russian Federation's Breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine and the Duty to Prevent, published uh, in May of this year by the New Minds Institute.
2: Once again, Chris, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to the June 2nd edition of Ukraine Without Hype. We'll be linking to the report that we are discussing in the description of the show. On the more housekeeping side of things, last week we began releasing our newsletter to our $10 a month and above patrons. So if you would like to receive that, then join that tier. Also, please send us your questions. We'll be, I did not choose one for this week, but I would like to cap off each episode with a question from our listeners. And with no further ado, I'd like to thank our supporters on Patreon who make this all possible. And they are Nope, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana Kokoratskaya, Devi, Don, Giuseppe, Abir, Ada McDonnell, Alex Grochmal, Amaya, Barbara, Big Rob, Brianna Rhoda, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Ostrovsky, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Jebra Lee, Devora Grazer, Eric Honald, George, Grace Kraus, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jennifer Jarvis, Jessica Eck, Justin Devendorf, Kristen Swanlund, Laura DeLeon, Laura Licari, Levy Grove, Evgenia. Lottie, Melissa Koselko, Mike Rohns, Mike Lee Whiplash, Noam Hart, Patricia George, Patricia Spurls, Paul Bailey, Rachel Haidu, Rajesh, Randy, Robert Bailey, Sanjay, Scott, Steve Bien, Steve Greenberg, T. Bart, Theo, Vic, and Will Stevens. Thank you all so much. And until next week, stay safe and Slav Ukraini!